Well, over the next uh, four months at least, though Stu tells me we're going to kick on through John's Gospel, uh, we're going to be traversing the lofty heights of the Gospel of John, one of these uh, four first-century biographies of Jesus. And last week, just by way of recap, we saw that John opens with a prelude, what you might call a prologue, first 18 verses, uh, which are designed to set us right for how to read um, this particular biography of Jesus. And one of the things he tells us right up front is you mustn't read this as a simple biography. This biography is the answer to the greatest human longing, to know the one behind the many, to know the rational mind behind the rational order of creation. In biblical language, to know the logos that stands behind everything. And I said last week that there is a kind of lament behind all of the deities and rituals of the world religions. The myriad gods and spirits of the world religions are a kind of coping mechanism, a way of coping with the loss of contact with the ultimate reality behind everything, which is sadly, in the perspective of many religions, unknowable. So I gave the example last week of Chinese culture. Uh, originally had this concept of Shen, the one God or spirit that underlies all existence. But in the course of time, Confucius, the immensely important philosopher, depersonalized Shen and spoke instead of the God or spirit behind the universe, uh, he spoke of heaven, depersonalizing ultimate reality. He would talk about heaven sending him. He would say, uh, heaven rules all things. And into the, what you might call, spiritual vacuum that he created, flooded a myriad of deities and spirits and rituals that make up the kind of Chinese folk religion that we recognize today. If you want more information about that, there's a wonderful book up on the screen, Jesus' Path to Human Flourishing, The Gospel for the Culture Chinese uh, by I Ching Thomas that uh, lays out this, the very roots of Chinese religion. And it's pretty clear, monotheism, belief in one God, was the root, and polytheism, the withering branch. The same is true of indigenous religion, both in America and here in, uh, in Australia. In these traditions, there is a great spirit behind all the local spirits that deal with the rivers and the rocks and so on. Um, indigenous religion tends to focus on the local spirits, not because they're considered more real, but because they're more tangible, more approachable than the great spirit that, uh, that, that is behind everything else. And I have this account of things directly from Dr. Miriam Rose, a leader of the Northern Territory Indigenous people. Uh, these um, various spirits in Aboriginal religion are a kind of compensation, a coping mechanism for the loss of a sense that you can really know the great spirit behind everything else. And what's fascinating is this was definitely the view of Greek and Roman persons in the ancient world for which the Gospel of John was written. 
Um, Greeks and Romans knew there was a logos, an operating system behind the universe. There had to be. The universe operated by, by rational principles and it produced a mind that understood the rational principles. There must be a logos behind everything they said. But in the absence of further information about this ultimate reality, we might as well just get on with all the various local gods that are more placatable, more understandable than the logos behind everything. It's as if Greco-Roman religion said, if we can't know the architect of the universe, we might as well worship the bits and pieces of the house. If we can't know our cosmic parent, we might as well act like cosmic orphans and make do with the scraps of transcendence we find lying around. And into this environment, into every cultural longing, the Gospel of John opens by saying, the Logos the mind behind the universe has stepped across the eternal threshold into history, in person, in Jesus Christ. And that's why this gospel opens with those extraordinary words. I hope you have it open in front of you in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1 that we looked at last week. In the beginning, verse 1, was the logos, the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then you scan down to verse 14, you get that remarkable climactic statement that the Word, or Logos, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Gospel of John, as I said last week, invites us to take our front row seats to see God unveiled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, these are the lofty heavenly heights set up in the very first paragraph of John's Gospel, and we're going to have lots of opportunity to breathe and think at that attitude throughout the rest of the series, because John pops right back up there uh, many times in the Gospel of John. But today we're looking at the second paragraph, and you'll notice we come plop right back down to earth. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now suddenly we're back in time and history. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. Now at first, this looks like it could be a reference to the author right? This is John's Gospel. If you pick up John's Gospel and you see it's called John's Gospel, and then you read in verse 6, a man named John came to testify to light, you think, oh, that's, that's, that's the Gospel author. But it soon becomes pretty clear at the end of chapter 1, this is not John the author, this is John the Baptist, a figure we know from what you might call secular, non-Christian writings from the first century, not just from our Gospel. So I'm going to take this as my cue to offer you a few historical remarks about John, the author of the Gospel, and John the Baptist, the first figure of John's story about Jesus. So, the John of the Gospel. The first thing to say is that all of our earliest manuscripts of John's Gospel have the same title. They all say, Gospel according to John. And there it is. For those of you who can read Greek, you can see it very clearly. Euangelion kata ioannon. Gospel according to John. Exactly as it appears in our earliest manuscripts. Now, I point this out because some people have said out in Skeptiland uh, that the Gospels were originally anonymous. And they argue this because they don't start like the letters. You know, the letter starts, I, Paul, write to you in Ephesus. And the Gospels don't start, I, John, write this Gospel for you guys in Ephesus. No. But on that rationale, virtually every ancient writing would be anonymous, including Plutarch and Tacitus and Suetonius and so on and on and on, because normal historical writings 
don't say a hello from the author in the beginning. They indicate who the author is by the title. And our titles are unanimous. This is a gospel according to John. And so the question is, who's John? Good question. We don't have to guess. We have uh, early church sources from the century immediately following the writing of this gospel, uh, like Clement of Alexandria, uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, who are unanimous that the gospel was written by none other than John, the brother of James, both sons of a man called Zebedee, who both were apostles. They were amongst the twelve that Jesus uh, called uh, to follow him and to preach his name. Now, we know that James Zebedee died in the year 44. We have really good evidence for that. He was executed by Herod Agrippa I. So the younger, uh, well, the other, the other Zebedee son, uh, James, is gone in 44. But we have really good evidence that this John lived right up to his late 80s, maybe even to the year 90, uh, in, uh, up to the year 98, which means um, he was about 90 uh, when he died, which isn't as uncommon as you might think. Um, in the ancient world, if you passed about 12 or 15, you had every chance of getting to your 70s, 80s, and quite a few uh, to, to 90. He lived to a very old age. Uh, he probably met Jesus when he was 20, in the year 28. And so he's about 90 in the year 98. We also know that John was a reasonably wealthy Galilean. This idea of the disciples all being peasants simply isn't true. Uh, The reference in the Gospels to the Zebedees having hired men in their fishing business is pretty good indication that they weren't subsistence fishermen. They were actually part of the massive fish trade between uh, Galilee in the north where they did the fishing and Jerusalem in the south. And having hired men meant that you're actually what we would call uh, middle class. And this probably accounts for why John appears to be well acquainted with Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, We know this because of his architectural and topographical references in the Gospels, which are quite fun because it's clearly written by someone who knew Jerusalem really well. When we get there in uh, chapter 5 and then in chapter 9, I'm going to point out some fun examples where John says some very specific things about the topography and architecture of Jerusalem that scholars doubted until they dug slightly to the left and found exactly the weird, bizarre details that John mentions in this gospel. He clearly knows his Galilee and his Jerusalem. But our sources also tell us that John eventually moved to Ephesus in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey. And he preached out his years, his final decades, in that weird and wonderful part of the Roman Empire. And this probably explains why this Gospel of John, unlike the other Gospels, is simultaneously really Jewish, reflecting John's first few decades, and pretty conversant with Greek and Roman ideas, which reflects his later decades in Ephesus. There's another detail about this John that's worth uh, pointing out. Five times in the Gospel, we get a reference to the disciple Jesus loved. And most scholars think this is the author's oblique reference to himself. It's a shy way of saying himself. 
And so five times the beloved disciple appears. And in some really interesting examples, so the chapter 13 one um, is the Last Supper. And it just says that the beloved disciple was sitting right next to Jesus. And so when the disciples wanted to ask Jesus something, they asked the one sitting next to him, the beloved disciple. Or I really like chapter 20's example because it says uh, at the resurrection, Peter and the beloved disciple ran to the tomb. And then you get this really weird eyewitness detail that the beloved disciple outran Peter, got there first. And you might think, oh, he's just boasting. He's taking the opportunity to say he was a faster runner than Peter. But actually then he says, but Peter went into the tomb before the beloved disciple. It's eyewitness reference to himself. Now, why is he called the beloved disciple? I mean, Jesus quite likes all of his disciples, I would have thought. Why the beloved? Um, It could be, there are two views here, a colloquial way of referring to Jesus' closest friend. There's a pretty good chance this is all it means. We already knew that Jesus had an inner circle of three, you know? From the other three Gospels and from a letter of Paul, we hear about the pillars of the church, who are, do you remember? Peter, James, and John, this John. So there's already a three who are closest confidants to, to, to Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, this way of saying the beloved disciple is saying this was the, the disciple who was Jesus' closest confidant. But there's another interpretation. It could just be a personal way the author conveys to readers his own deep assurance that Christ loves him. In other words, it's a little bit like how Paul in Galatians 2, in the middle of an argument about how much Christ loves you, he goes, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And we wouldn't fret about that and go, oh, Paul, Paul, why are you being so you know, self-absorbed about how much Jesus loves you? It's just a really intensification of the larger theological point that Christ loves us all. I don't know which of those it is. I quite like the idea that it's just Jesus' bestie, right? But it could just be a more theological thing going on. Either way, it gives a beautiful atmosphere to John's gospel, don't you think? We are reading the words of one who knew himself to be intimately loved by the Logos, by the Word made flesh, who joked with him, who touched him, who ate with him, who cried with him. There's an intimacy to this gospel that I think is beautiful. And I feel like saying, may we all, as we read John's gospel, breathe in that atmosphere and know ourselves to be beloved disciples. I don't just mean that you will read John's gospel and feel like you love Jesus more. I'm going to learn to love Jesus more. There's something way more important than that. That you would learn how much Christ loves you. And there's every reason to think this is actually one of John's primary aims. There are a squillion passages in John's gospel that actually talk about how much Jesus loves the various people he meets. He might regard himself as the beloved disciple, But it it talks about how Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Um, And then the Jews say, see how he loved him, referring to Lazarus. And there are all these passages about Jesus showing the full extent of his love to his disciples. Jesus loved, loved, loved. May we know ourselves to be loved by Jesus as we read this gospel. Well, that's uh, our author, John. Let me spend just a few moments on the other John. Who's mentioned in verse 6? There was a man sent from God whose name 
was John. It becomes clear by the end of the chapter, this is John called the Baptist. Just glance over at, say, verse 19. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him, and they asked him who he is, or down in verse uh, 26, this John says, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one, uh, you do not know, etc., etc., etc. All four Gospels mention John the Baptist at the front of the story. I know he's not a big deal to us, but he was a massive deal to them. Matthew chapter 3, substantially about John the Baptist. Mark chapter 1, substantially about John the Baptist. Um, Luke chapter 3, substantially about John the Baptist. And uh, John chapter 1 and chapter 3 about John the Baptist. They all give the impression that John the Baptist was the most significant religious figure before Jesus. And actually, that's an impression confirmed by a non-Christian writing from the same period. Here's Josephus, a first century Jewish aristocrat and general, who writes in his great history of the Jewish people these words. But to some of the Jews, the destruction of Herod's army, this is Herod Antipas, um, son of Herod the Great, seemed to be divine vengeance, and certainly a just vengeance, for his treatment of John, surnamed the Baptist. For Herod had him put, it, put to death, though he was a good man and had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows and piety towards God, and so doing, to join in baptism. In his view, this was a necessary preliminary if baptism was to be acceptable to God. When others too joined the crowds about him, because they were aroused to the highest degree by his sermons, Herod became alarmed. Eloquence that had so great an effect on mankind might lead to some form of sedition, for it looked as if they would be guided by John in everything that they did. Herod decided, therefore, that it would be much better to strike first and be rid of him before his work led to an uprising. Beautiful correspondence between Josephus and what our Gospels say. John was a big deal. He was regarded as a prophet, like the prophets of old, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, like Isaiah, and that's exactly the language of verse 6. might not mean much to us, but to Jewish readers, whenever you say there's a man sent by God, that means nothing more than, nothing less than, this is a prophet of old. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's a key descriptor in the Old Testament of prophets, which is why we had the call of Jeremiah read out earlier today. So Isaiah 6 speaks of Isaiah being sent by God. Jeremiah the same, Ezekiel the same. John the Baptist was sent to speak the very words of God. But he wasn't the Word. He wasn't the light. He wasn't the main game. And that's why verse 7 rushes to tell you he's important, but... He came, verse 7, as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. What's that doing in there? John was such a big deal, people wondered whether he was the light, the embodiment of the truth of God. And in fact, uh, we'll see in a few weeks when we get to the end of chapter 1, 
that John the Baptist was such a big deal, he had to hose down the speculation about who he was. So, for example, have a look at uh, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Oh, my goodness. Before me. Because this is the Logos. Or or, or keep going over to 3.30. Chapter 3, verse 30. I love this. Chapter 3 is partially about John the Baptist too and how um, Jesus and his disciples are getting more converts, as it were, than John the Baptist was. And people come to John the Baptist and say, hey, that that other guy, he's doing really well. And look what John says in verse 30 of chapter 3. He must become greater. I must become less. The greatest Jewish figure of the early first century said, I must become less. He must become greater. As indeed it turned out. And that is why verse 8 of the prelude emphasizes John came only as a witness to the light. He wasn't the light. Nothing and no one should eclipse or distract us from the light of Christ. That's what I think this mention of John up front reminds us of. And actually, like many things in the prelude, it's an important theme through the whole of John's gospel. And on just about every page, we're forced to ask the question, which is more important? Which is more important? John the Baptist or Jesus? The Pharisees? Or Jesus? The Sadducees or Jesus? Greek wisdom or Jesus? The Samaritan traditions or Jesus? The temple and its priesthood or Jesus? Pilate, the Roman governor or Jesus? And all the way through the gospel, we're asked this question Who is the true light? And where are the distractions? Let me close by saying, John, the beloved disciple, reminds us to read his gospel in the atmosphere of Christ's love. Will you do that? As you read John's gospel, don't think, oh Lord, how can I love you more? How can I love you more? Look for how much he loves you. Breathe in that atmosphere. And John the Baptist reminds us that nothing should overshadow Christ's light. There are many competitors for our affections and our loyalties, but Christ is the light. And actually, these two ideas are interlocking, if you think about it. It's as we look to Christ alone as the true light that we'll find ourselves breathing in the atmosphere of His love. You put Christ first, And you will know yourself to be a beloved. Equally, it's as we breathe in Christ's love, apparent on every page of John's gospel, that the distractions will fade, that the competitors will disappear, and you'll be looking at Jesus as the true light, as the one who deserves your all.
We learn from the beloved disciple to look to Christ's love. We learn from John the Baptist to look to Christ's light. May that be our experience, not just as we read together John's gospel, but as we live through the week, breathing in that love and finding in Christ the true light of the world. Amen. Lord, please, in your mercy, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to bend to what is true and beautiful. Lord, may we, wherever we are at in our journey toward you or even maybe away from you, may we find ourselves able to breathe in the atmosphere of your love in Christ and to see the light of Christ and from that light see everything else. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.